Welcome, everyone, to another episode of the Methodist Voice podcast. We are still in the Primeval series, covering Genesis chapters 1 through 11. Today, we will be beginning chapter 6. There is a lot of content out there on this subject, so I won't belabor the point too much. We're just going to give an overview of what it is saying. We will be interpreting the passage, and this is an important point, as it would have been read and understood by the original recipients of the text, not as a modern 21st century uh, person might read the text. And that's very important because that's the audience to whom it was written. Remember, the Bible was written for us, but it wasn't written to us. It was written to the people who would have received it at the time in which it was written. So to try and reinterpret the text or to judge it from a modern point of view simply clouds and obscures what it actually meant. The Bible cannot mean something it never meant. It can have multiple applications, but there's only one correct interpretation of any given text. So... We're going to take off and run with that. Now, I'm not going to waste our time covering all of the different ways this text is interpreted. Any study Bible can help you with that. There's only one way to properly interpret this text, and I'm going to give you the bullet points and proofs as to why. But first, let's look at what the text actually says and what we're going to cover today. And that is Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. Here's what it says, starting in verse 1. When man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh, his days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim, giants like Goliath is what that means, were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God, now that's a word, benai ha Elohim, it's almost always translated angels elsewhere in the Old Testament. When the sons of God came into the daughters of men, they bore children to them. These were the mighty men Giborim, who were of old, the men of renown, objects of worship. Now, Giborim, that word mighty men, can be used in a good sense or in a bad sense. Here it is used in a bad sense. Other places in the Old Testament, it's used of David and his mighty men, Giborim. Verse 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Now, we can say that it's connected with what we've just read as a consequence of what was going on in Genesis chapters 1 through 4. The consequence of that is that the only thoughts of the heart of man was only evil all of the time. 
And so we have to have a response to that. We have to put a stop to that. We have to stop the bleeding of evil into the minds and hearts of humanity, which is what the flood of Noah is going to be. The flood of Noah is God's response to the flood of evil that is overwhelming his good creation. So let's finish out this, verse 6. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man, whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Now again, This corruption that is happening is not only affecting human beings, but the animals, the creeping things, and the birds. It's affecting everything. And so this is why such drastic measures need to be taken. God is going to bring the flood of Noah as a great rescue plan from the evil that is infecting not just human beings, but all of creation. Now, to think about how to interpret this correctly, let's first look at how the New Testament interprets this account, as that will be the most authoritative uh, picture by which, or frame by which we view what the text is saying here. I'm going to read to you, first of all, from Jude, the New Testament book of Jude, chapter 1, verse 6. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority. So that's telling us right there, Benai Ha Elohim, the sons of God. The New Testament interprets that as referring to angels. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling. What that means, they came to earth and cohabited with human beings. He has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Now, you tell me how this ought to be interpreted. It is not unclear. Jude is interpreting the events of Genesis 6 as angels leaving their correct habitation, commingling with people they hadn't ought to commingle with in a sexual way. That is, it's not arguable. That's clearly what it's saying. And that's not the only place. It says it elsewhere. Let's go to 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 6, starting in verse 4. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah. Again, that tells you the time frame and the scenario that Peter is addressing. Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the earth of the ungodly. If by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, once again, referencing that, people engaging in sexual sin in ways that they hadn't ought to engage in sexual sin, if 
By turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemns them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. Again, you tell me how that ought to be interpreted. It isn't ambiguous. It isn't unclear. If we just let the text speak for itself, if we assume that it says what it means and it means what it says, it's not difficult to understand. And so I'm I'm not going to sift through an exhaustive list of selective readings on how this text has been interpreted in history. But there's only one way this text would have been interpreted by an ancient audience, the original recipients of the information. All A-N-E, ancient Near Eastern accounts of the ancient world of this time, had accounts of gods, little g-gods, sleeping with human women, and having demigods as children who were all objects of worship. In Genesis, it says they were mighty men, men of renown. They were products of evil. In all of the other ancient Near Eastern accounts, they're gods worthy of worship. So what is distinct about the biblical record is the interpretation of these events, not the facts of these events. These events were in rebellion against the one and only uncreated God. And these events had not ought produce beings who were considered objects of worship, but objects of scorn. They are evil. So that's what's unique about the book of Genesis amongst all of the other literature of the time about this topic. Let's just say this. Up until around the 2nd century AD, these stories were all interpreted the same way everywhere by everyone. Created divine beings had sex with humans, creating something other than human that were giant in comparison with normal human beings. That is true as we find these stories with much more detail in Second Temple literature found at Qumran in the Dead Sea Scrolls in texts such as First Enoch, which was quoted in that text from, Jubilee, or from Jude that we just read from, Jubilees, and the Book of Giants. This is clearly what the New Testament teaches on the subject. This is the interpretation that the famous Jewish historian Josephus ascribes to this subject. It is the unanimous opinion of the anti-Nicene fathers, that is, the leaders of the church before the Council of Nicaea in the 3rd and 4th centuries A.D. Alternative interpretations to this story started because the early church was embarrassed that the book of Genesis taught something that looked identical to Greek and Roman mythology. As the ancient world began to abandon these stories as myth rather than real theology or real history, many church leaders wanted to remove that obstacle to those people believing in the message of the Bible. And so you can understand the motivation. I certainly can. That's a bad church growth strategy. But if it isn't true, it isn't right. And as we have learned previously on this podcast, just because a story or a history may be communicated in the form of mythology doesn't mean it isn't true. 
And so it is with this particular story. This is, in fact, a much larger story than what can be contained in just these few four verses of Scripture, which is what mythology functions to do. It tells a big, complex story in a concise and memorable way. Now, let me offer you one selected reading from a book outside of the Bible, again, that sheds more light on what's going on behind the scenes. Genesis 6, 1 through 4 is a very condensed and concise mythology. We have other information that sheds more light about what's going on in the background of these verses that we need to be mindful of. It's not scripture. That doesn't mean it's unimportant, and it doesn't mean that it's not right. And so I'm going to give you a select reading from one of the documents found with the Dead Sea Scrolls. The Dead Sea Scrolls predate the New Testament by orders of hundreds of years. They were considered important information by faithful, believing Jews. Again, some of this information is contained in the ideas presented in the New Testament, so it is important. This is from the Book of Giants, a little about the Book of Giants. The earliest known traditions for the book originate in Aramaic. That's a language that you will find in the Old Testament and other places, like in the book of Daniel. Copies of the book of Giants is found among the Dead Sea Scrolls. References to the Giants mythology are found in Genesis 6, 1 through 4, the books of Enoch, Jubilees, the Genesis Apocryphon, 2nd and 3rd Baruch, the Damascus Document, and certain visions in the book of Daniel. Here's what the document says. It only exists in fragmented form, so some of the sentences are going to be disjointed. But it gives some important clues as to the goings-on behind the scenes of Genesis 6. So, what we're going to read is a summary statement of the descent of the wicked angels, bringing both knowledge and havoc. So we compare this with uh, Genesis 1 through 4. And this is, again, going to be fragmented and disjointed, but here's what it says in the book of Giants. They knew the secrets of blank. Sin was great in the earth, and they killed man. They begat giants. And so the angels exploit the fruitfulness of the earth. Everything that the earth produced, the great fish, the sky with all that grew, fruit of the earth, and all kinds of grain, and all the trees, beasts, and reptiles, all creeping things of the earth, they observed all every harsh deed and utterance, male and female, among humans. Now, according to the Book of Enoch and the Book of Giants, 200 angels chose animals. There were 200 angels that rebelled. They descended on Mount Hermon, and they did many wicked things, and one of those things was 200 of these angels chose animals on which to perform unnatural acts. Now, you can fill in the blanks. There are laws against this in the Old Testament for a reason. And so these unnatural acts they performed on both animals and humans. 200 donkeys, 200 asses, 200 rams of the flock, 200 goats, 200 beasts of the field from every animal, from every bird. And here's the word for miseducation. 
Now, what does that word mean? It means crossbreeding. They were performing experiments of crossbreeding with these creatures. In other words, the outcome of the demonic corruption was violence, perversion, and a brood of monstrous beings that they were concocting by some kind of experiments. It was genetic manipulation and alteration. This is very important to understand because it gives us insight as to a few other episodes of Scripture that are very hard to reconcile with modern temperaments. First, it answers the question as to why God felt it necessary to flood and destroy the entire earth. It wasn't just that people were acting wrong. There had been an incursion by some 200 rebellious divine beings with divine knowledge who were using that knowledge to corrupt the DNA of the entire planet. This is why in the story of Noah, God personally brings the animals on the ark two by two. That way, both the male and female, now so much for this non-binary stuff, which is ludicrous, both the male and female are ensured to carry the unique and proper DNA that God created, not a corrupted version. The motive of the rebellious beings corrupting the DNA of God's creation is simple. It's found in the mother prophecy of Genesis chapter 3. Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring or your seed and her offspring or her seed. He shall bruise your head, you shall bruise his heel. And so, first, these beings wanted to become objects of worship themselves. Furthermore, they wanted to experience God's creation in a way in which they were forbidden to do so. They, they left their proper estate. But they knew the consequences of that. Uh, if these enemies of God could corrupt the offspring of women to the extent it was no longer human, then this prophecy of their future demise could never come to pass. Secondly, these beings would have been motivated to recreate the earth after their own image and likeness. They wanted offspring that were like them. This is what drives parents to do what they do. They want little mini-me's. So, in fact, the book of First Enoch informs us that the offspring they produce through this genetic manipulation of human and animals alike is where beings referred to as demons In the New Testament comes from, demons are the disembodied spirits of these dead creatures, and their presence and influence on the earth is destructive and evil. We can also begin to see why, when the Jewish people were taking possession of the promised land, which was reportedly overrun with these types of genetic alterations, God commanded them to destroy everything. The men, the women, the children, the animals. In the story from the text, even the grapes were massive, with one cluster of grapes needing to be carried on a pole between two people. You can find that in Numbers 13.23. There had been a corruption of God's good creation, and that had to be erased 
It was evil. Not only was it evil, this corruption God knew because uh, it wasn't his design. It would proliferate disease, malformity, or disformations. It would proliferate temperaments in the minds and hearts of people that were violent and, and despicable and perverse. There had to be a stop put to this. The disease would overtake things and ruin everything. Now, according to Scripture, these angels that sinned were put in prison until the time of their judgment, which, that's comforting. But before they were imprisoned, they taught humans all kinds of forbidden knowledge, according to First Enoch. That is important to remember when it comes to thinking about things like megalithic structures, such as the Great Pyramids of Giza, among others, many others, all over the world. And how primitive humans were able to accomplish such feats of engineering that we're incapable of even to this day with modern technology. It also helps us to think about what we are going to read about post-flood in the account of the Tower of Babel and what might be happening there. Because this story like likely represents just such a structure, a megalithic structure like this. And so the idea of ancient advanced civilizations being in existence uh, that are testified to people like Plato, there's probably something to that because we find evidence of advanced capabilities in the ancient world that we simply do not have an explanation for. And these paradigms that we're reading about here in Genesis help us to understand what might be going on behind it. Uh, there are divine beings with divine knowledge disclosing forbidden things to human beings that are corrupting the planet with all kinds of evil, physical evil, ideological evil, religious evil, and God has to put a stop to it because he knows it creates massive oppression and slavery and injustice. And that's just not what the God of the Bible, the God of the Hebrew Bible, the God of the Jews, the God of the Christians, he's not about that. He's about love. He's about freedom. He's about goodness. He's about life. All of these things destroy that. And so really the responsibility for evil in the text is placed, a lot of it is placed, we can say the bulk of it is placed at the feet of the serpent character in the garden. That's the first incursion of these beings. And here's the second one in Genesis chapter 6. It is these corrupted divine beings that are ruining uh, not only humanity, but God's creation. And this is why they are put in prison without a chance for repentance. It is just inexcusable. So in closing, what has happened before can happen again. As bizarre and unbelievable as it might seem. You can read about modern developments of genetic tampering called transhumanism at my Substack page at thefoundrypress.org. I'm going to link to that in the description, the specific article you might want to catch up on, because a lot of these same things are being experimented with today, and much of it is behind the scenes. So uh, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Catch us next time on The Methodist Voice. We will continue 
with the stories found in Genesis chapters 1 through 11. They have profound relevance for us today. And if you want to see maybe a picture of what might be coming in the future in regards to these same types of things happening, you might read the book of Revelation. You might read the book of Revelation chapter 9 specifically. Because we need to be mentally prepared and have concepts in our minds and hearts to be able to interpret what is happening as the world burns with madness. We need to be people of the light who are informed, who are awake, and who are prepared to communicate God's truth to the world around us. So, blessings to everyone. Hope you enjoy Christmas with your family and the new year. We'll catch you uh, in the next couple weeks with our next episode. Bye and be blessed.